Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Page 2 podcast presented by Chase Oaks Church, which is a space for all of us to wrestle with big issues, challenge quick sound bites, and dive into nuance and necessary details. These spaces are getting rarer and rarer today. Twitter doesn't help. 24-hour news stations certainly don't help. And even the way Sunday morning sermons are structured, it's hard to get into everything in 30 minutes. And so thanks for taking the time to join us in this space where we'll dive behind the headlines and beyond Sunday morning sermons. We're glad you're with us. So when I became a public defender, I had no idea how the bail system operated. And it doesn't take long when you're a public defender to stand in a courtroom next to a client, watch a judge set bail, and have the client turn to you and say, I don't have that money. And inevitably what happens is the client will turn to you and say, I'll just plead guilty, they'll let me go home. And you want to scream. And you think to yourself, nobody should go to a jail cell because they don't have any money. But that's what happens every day. One of the defining things about Jesus was the way he loved people and what makes him a compelling figure for people today, both Christians and non-Christians alike. And it's interesting how many non-Christians say that they respect or even admire Jesus because they see a person who reached out to the hurting and to the disenfranchised and the counted out and the poor, and he did so with compassion and he empowered them to live a completely different life. It's also interesting how many non-Christians like Jesus, but um, don't really like the church or respect the church. And many say it's because they don't see the church as, a, as, as an example of that type of love uh, that Jesus demonstrated. Instead, they see uh, bitter infighting and politics and anger and finger pointing and all of that. As a church, it's caused us to think about how we can change the way our community thinks about church. Uh, And really, it's a desire to go back to what Jesus told us to focus on at the very beginning, uh, and that's just to love. And to love maybe in, in surprising and unexpected ways that causes people in our community to say, huh, uh, and, and be maybe a little surprised or causes maybe even some confusion, uh, particularly among uh, religious people. Today, we're going to talk about a recent initiative that Chase Oaks has gotten involved in that has begun to raise some questions, uh, and it involves the disruption of the cash bail process in our c- criminal justice system. And we have uh, a lot of partners that we work with and support um, doing that are doing amazing work in our community, but we, we're going to dedicate a whole podcast just to this one initiative, basically because of the number of eyebrows it's raised and the number of questions that have come in. So we're talking about bail and income inequality and the two-tier system uh, of justice that exists in our country, and it's going to be a great conversation. I'm Greg Holmes. And I'm Eric Torrance. Greg, before we take a moment to dive into that mouthful of a topic that you, uh, you set up for us, uh, I have to say one thing, and that's congratulations. Apparently, you've made it on Spotify. I, I yeah, that's right. My my daughter, you know, we at the very beginning we applied. You know, we were going to be on you know Google Play and iTunes and all of this, and then and Spotify as well. And then I I just forgot to check because we never heard back right. from Spotify. And then my daughter texted me and she said, "Dude, you're on Spotify." So you know, which my, how cool is it that your daughter calls you dude? Yeah, as I don't we know talked if that's about. Cool or yeah, not, I think but, it's pretty cool. But yeah. hey, you can go with it as you are. But you know, we we have officially made it uh, through one season of the Page Two podcast. Uh, if you're listening and you 
or like, well, what are seasons or what are they talking about? We, we've set up uh, this podcast. It's going to keep going on, but we've, we try to do it seasonally where we release uh, uh, eight or so episodes uh, weekly and then take a little bit of a break and recalibrate and come back again with another one. So we are at episode number eight of season one, and they never said we'd made it that far. I In know. fact, actually, I don't even know who would say anything like that, right, but, right. but we did make it that far, so congratulations. And we were not quite sure you know, how this was going to go, and so we have received lots of great feedback, and people say, hey, I'm listening to your podcast, it's been, and it's been, it's been really, really great. So I want to ask you, yeah. Eric, so congratulations yeah. to you as well. Thank you. Yeah. I was waiting on that. I tried my Spotify checking, and there was nothing on there, so I don't know if I'm on there yet or not. But well, hey. oh, well, maybe it's just me. <laughs> and so I want to ask you, now that we've kind of gone through the, yeah. the first season, what have been some of the highlights for you or learnings or anything like that from the first season? Yeah, I, I still, I mean, the one that I've heard the most about about that has just produced a lot of great conversations and, and just continued thinking for me was the one we did with Paul Martel yeah. uh, on the LGBTQ conversation and just how impactful it is to hear someone's personal story. So that yeah. just goes down as a highlight. I mean, the other ones were all great as well. It's just Paul's vulnerability is contagious on there. And, yeah. and I just keep getting people that are coming back up and and just how timely of an episode that that was uh, and how cool it was to be a part of that conversation. Right. What about you? Yeah, I would probably say the same thing. And I think we mentioned even when we were recording that, that I think that that uh, there's a whole bundle of topics and conversations where that that we could have um, regarding sexuality and and all of that. But I'm I'm so glad that we started with a story and that we started with Paul and he was just, you know, he's a friend of us both. and, And he just did a great job. I also really liked I think it was a highlight for me, just the one we did this last week, um, the, the conversation with Cindy and with, uh, with Caroline and yeah. Stephanie, um, w- w- in some ways was similar to me. I think yeah. that I really appreciate their vulnerability and I, f- I feel like that is the first of what really needs to be quite a few conversations for us to move forward as a church and as a community and as, and as in our places of business, if we're actually going to. If we're going to progress, you know, that needs, there needs to be a lot more conversations like that. And, and, I, I and, really like and that. I think it really, those two podcasts in particular highlight, you know, a lot of the vision that we had behind uh, what the Page Two podcast could present for people, which was a space to hear stories from people that, you know, no matter how great of a sermon it is, or even an article or a piece that you're reading from someone, it's just, you're never going to get that breadth of different stories and experiences um, without having a longer conversation with people. Right. And, and so I thought it was just cool that, you know, to see the dreams that we had kind of had been thinking about to see in those particular conversations, how helpful they were yeah. um, to others, but but even just to me. Yeah. And I think one learning too, is that um, I want to do a lot more of these. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's a lot more topics I, that I'm eager to for us to jump into, and we we don't have a launch date yet for for season two. Uh, most likely to be sometime in the fall. We'll, we'll start working on that this summer, and then uh, um, and so for anybody who's been listening and, and paying attention, you can go to our Facebook um, page or go to our website and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you if you have some other topics or things that you'd love for us to talk about we uh we'd love to respond to those yeah you can follow us on twitter at at page two podcast or go to our facebook page is the easiest place to just leave a suggestion and some of you guys have already done that already which has been great and we'll we'll make sure we get a good lead up on there i'm sure it'll be bigger than the game of thrones uh you know uh, last season or in game or all those i'm I'm sure it'll just be right up there with uh, the same amount of energy in the launch but we're excited about that i think it'll be really good 
Um, but Greg, technically, it you know we haven't actually finished this last this this last episode. I mean, this first season, we still have this one to go through, and um, and it's a doozy of a of a topic. You know, in your opener, you talked about loving in an unexpected way that causes people to go, huh, and, and even opens up, uh, you know, in that sense to being to loving in a way that can be misinterpreted by people. Uh, where there's even confusion of like, hey, what did you mean by that? And I mean, even when you look at the ways that that Jesus loved um, and lived his life, it was confusing to people. And and we can't be too hard on that either, that just the way that he kind of upended social norms or approached people that that weren't, that were just difficult uh, Mm -hmm. to love. Um, So just talk to me about that, of what, what you think of when you think of loving in the way that Jesus loved people, what kinds of thoughts or images does that bring up for you? Well, I think it's it's interesting that you asked that question with regard right before this topic, because yeah. I think that there was, in Jesus's life, there was an upending of norms to where those who were most concerned about sort of keeping a status quo or most concerned about um, sort of... Uh, societal systems and, and those types of things um, felt very threatened by by Jesus. And he just went straight to the core of, okay, I, I want to care for people that are sick or people that are being disenfranchised or people that are uh, poor or, or the prisoner. Like those are the people that God uh, has a special heart for and scripture, and, and scripture um, comes around that in multiple ways. And so um, I think that this issue, what we have learned that we're going to get to um, – here in the next few moments um, has been an eye-opening one for me, um, and some of and, and and it's been challenging a little bit right. um, because it does sort of disrupt. And I, you know, I intentionally used the word disrupt um, the some of the systems, some societal systems that we have in place. Right. Um, that uh, I think is healthy. You know. Yeah, I think I think when you from our eyes as we look back and read the stories of Jesus that we weren't, because that wasn't our, completely our system, you know, right. the religious system of their day, the the social class system of the day, um, that when we look at it with our 21st century eyes and we're like, well, yeah, that system needs to be disrupted. I mean, yeah. that's awful. Those religious people, you know, and all that. And and I've wondered uh, many times, okay, what, what systems would Jesus disrupt if he was here mm-hmm. today? And, and that there would be, it's almost a guarantee, there would be a number of actions that he would do that would make me go, huh, I'm not so sure right. I'm comfortable with that. Um, and, and even as you read like a story that is so common, the Good Samaritan, and I think a good question to ask is to say, well, who is the Samaritan in our culture today? Who is yeah. the person that if so, if Jesus was teaching on on loving your neighbor, that this person would just be someone just so completely out of left field uh, mm-hmm. for us uh, that we're like, well, I don't, I don't think that would be the person that would be the hero right. of the story or somebody that could be an, an advocate of love, that Jesus had a way of doing that. And mm-hmm. so I, I just think as we talk about income and uh, income inequality and poverty and systems and, and, and really couching it under the idea of love, that, um, you know, as all of us talk about the idea of love, I've not, I've not met too many people that are not 
for love, that are not for Jesus and the way that he loved. But when you actually get into specifics about what does it mean um, to love in a surprising way, um, that's where it gets to be challenging. And that's what we're going to talk about in today's podcast. And I'm grateful for that is is love that, in a sense, upends and makes us uncomfortable. So I think all of us have to kind of, you know, open up our ears a little bit and say, I'm willing to be put into an uncomfortable place today and to think through how to be part of the solution to fixing systemic injustices and and being part of uh, just helping people that it, that oftentimes the system is a struggle for so many, uh, both nationally and also in our community. And, and so um, after a quick break, we're going to welcome in someone that knows this firsthand. His name is Kenny Brown, and he's a friend of ours uh, and, and someone we've worked with, but he's also the director of Pivot, which is just hands-on in this, uh, in, in our community. And so we'll welcome him here in a moment. And we're back. So I am um, pleased to welcome Kenny Brown uh, to the conversation. Kenny Thanks, Brown is, uh, has a long history with Chase Oaks. He's been a pastor for years and years. He was on staff here at Chase Oaks um, quite a while ago, but then now has been back. How long have you been back here in Dallas area? A couple of years? years. Two years. Yeah. Uh, he's been back running a, a nonprofit organization called Pivot Talent Group. So, Kenny, uh, welcome. Thank Thanks you. for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having um, me. Hey, Kenny. Tell us. Hello. <laughs> for all of our listeners, give us the uh, the rundown on what uh, Pivot Talent Group is. Yeah, so Pivot Talent Group really started um, under the banner of um, alleviating poverty. And at mm-hmm. the heart of that was how do we help people get jobs. Okay. And so we work with multiple, um, probably about 16 nonprofits in the community and the DA's office in order to help people find jobs who are part of those programs. So, and then we work with about 50 companies now across the DFW area and help them find talent. So our goal is to bridge those two things together in order to help people who've done well, do good in our community. Okay. And so the talent that you are trying to find for all of these companies, they're coming from nonprofits like for Shelters or from a whole host of nonprofits. Yeah, Family Promise, Agape, those type yeah. of organizations. And then they're also coming from the DA. So tell me how how the DA, how that works. Yeah, so um, two years ago, the DA approached Chase Oaks about running a diversion program. Okay. So that, um, You'll need to explain what that means. Yeah, so a diversion program simply means at the end of the program, they receive expungement, which means if they're charged with a felony or a misdemeanor, it's wiped off completely from their record. Okay. So they go through our programs about a year long in it. They receive training, about 100 hours of training. They receive coaching. They receive job placement. And then ultimately when they finish the program, they end up getting uh, expunged. Wow. Hmm. So our goal really is to set them up for success. Right. And it's like, man, if they could have life coaching, if they could have a job and some job history, and then their record to be clear – then they're set up for success. That's in the a future. new trajectory. That's for exactly life. the idea. Right. The job changes and everything. And, That's it. You know. Yeah. So. That's awesome. So, I'm sure there have been, and there's probably a whole lot of things. I was going to ask if I was going to ask like, what are your learnings? Yeah. It'd probably be a really long list. So for our listener, like, what are some of your top yeah. kind of learnings? Yeah, I, I think I would start at a really high level. I mean, the first thing I would say is opportunity is at the heart of what Jesus did. Huh. Um, Jesus created opportunity for all of us to connect to him that most of us um, weren't able to. I mean, as Gentiles, we were 
did not have the same access. So mm-hmm. that is, to me, just one of those great pictures of, and this is kind of the work of Jesus, of how do we create opportunity for people. I think what I would also say is opportunity is, hasn't, in our culture, is not equal. Huh. Yeah. As much as I would want it to be, I've noticed over and over again that it's not. We have different starting points. We have different networks of people. We have different educations. And we also have very different generational wealth which really allows us to be positioned for success. So um, as much as I would love for it to say it's all equal, I think we've learned that it isn't. And then really the last thing is that as we try to create opportunity and be advocates for people, um, that it really takes awareness and to be aware of that people do have those different starting points. And so they don't have the networks that we all rely on to get jobs. They also struggle with some of the uh, issues that they have personally. So many of the people we work with come out of nonprofits. So they do have some emotional baggage, some things that they've been through, which by the way, we all have had. Right. And, and really at that point, um, be aware of that. So making sure we don't put them in a role that in turn doesn't set them up for success. Yeah. But what I would also say is what makes pivot talent group unique is we're also extremely aware of that. We need to be uh, helpful for the employer that employers need to be successful at hiring talent that because for every um, failed hire, they lose 30% of the first year salary. And that's for the lowest hmm. plate of lowest roles. And the second thing is they lose 16 weeks of production. So being aware of both sides is critical as we start creating opportunity yeah. and trying to help people advance. But we have to do it in a way that sets up both sides for success. Right. Yeah. I think it's fascinating when you talk about, um, how not everybody's at the same point. And there's so many things that I might have in my back pocket that I completely take for granted mm-hmm. that if I, if I went through a situation where, um, I, uh, lost everything or, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, it could be a medical emergency or it could, could be something, or, or maybe I do something dumb or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. you know what right. I mean? That, um, what, whatever the reason is, I have resources that I probably completely take for granted that allows me to bounce back a whole lot easier, allows me to get back up on my feet. And just as some of the, as you have shared some things in conversations over the last year, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of dawned on me that not everybody has those things. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy for me on the outside to, to say, well, why don't they just do this, this, and this when they don't have the opportunities to do that, or they may be haven't grown up in a home or in a culture or an environment where those things have been modeled, where that doesn't seem like an, those don't seem like viable options. Even if it is for them, they've never seen it. They've never experienced it. They've never, you know, or whatever on, on how to maybe take advantage of, of certain resources or, or whatever to, to do it. And so from an outside perspective, it's just really easy to judge. Um, and, and not really recognize these, maybe some of the advantages that I have. Exactly. You know? I, I think one of the ones that we miss so often is generational wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and, and I'm not saying that we're given that money, but just the fact that it's in your family means that if I lost my job today and everything goes south, my parents are not going to let their grandbabies be living on the side of the road. Right. You know, and that creates a sense of security as for our family to take risk that other people can't take, mm-hmm. which in turn sets you up for opportunity and success that other people don't have right. or aren't available to. So it allows you to take risk that many people aren't allowed to do. And I think that we miss that. And one of the, and I don't have the stat, 
but it's the first job you get out of college sets is kind of the key point of your trajectory in so often in your career. Mm-hmm. And it's been shown statistic after statistic that generational wealth would, what it leads to is you being more patient coming out of college with your first job, hmm. which sets you up because you get yeah. $10,000 more in your starting point or whatever. Right. And that changes trajectory for the, for the rest of your career. Or yeah. I'd even imagine college just being a college in general. All. Right. Yeah. right. That's exactly right. So as interesting as all of that is, um, and it's great to hear a little bit about what Pivot is doing, that's not exactly what we invited you here to do. So (laughs) thanks for giving us a little bit of that backstory and what Pivot is is all about. Um, But because of your work with Pivot, it has um, caused us to ask different questions and to learn some different things. about another issue, which is which is the cash bail system, mm-hmm. which as which has led us as a church to partner with and support the bail project, as I sort of set up at, at the beginning of this podcast. And so, give us a little bit of the backstory. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of a longer story, but give us the short version, a, a little bit of the backstory on how what you're doing with Pivot kind of made us aware of of bail and how there's some injustices or some things that maybe some opportunities for us to come around that issue. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, for me, starting off two years ago, I knew nothing about the justice system. I remember interviewing for the role and they looked at me and said, you know, tell me why you're qualified. And I said, well, the first thing you need to know is I know nothing about the justice system. So if you're looking for an expert in that world, I'm not your guy. Yeah. I would tell you that I've slowly been educated um, in this space, um, but I'm still not a lawyer and, you know, and I'm still not a judge or any NDA, but what I would say is, as a guy who from outside the system, um, I would say I, I didn't understand how it worked. Yeah. And as you get closer to it, um, you realize that the wheels of justice churn. And many times people can get lost in that churning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, really our goal at Pivot was to help bring, some dig- bring dignity to that process. And in the midst of that, I think what we've realized is that – Many of them, um, of the people we've worked with, one of the struggles they have is paying bail. Huh. And part of it is because they're living in poverty. Right. Right. And so in turn, you say, come up with $5,000 um, and they don't have it. Yeah. And, you know, that's. And if turn, they don't have it. They sit in jail. Yeah. And, and for a guy who's all about helping them get a job, that means they lose their job. Huh. Mm-hmm. Which means for many of us who say, well, these people just need to get jobs and get their act together and, and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We just took away one of the biggest things uh, they need to be successful, which is a job. Mm-hmm. And because they can't make bail and they miss work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really where we saw it um, in trying to um, do our best to create as much opportunity as possible. That's really where it showed up first. Yeah. Well, as you talk about that, um, in my mind, and, and you know, you and I have had conversations before, and so we're going to sort of replay some of those conversations mm-hmm. even here for for our listeners. But I just have a whole lot of questions right. about how bail works and how what does a bail bondsman do, and how does you know all of that kind of stuff because I don't know anything about that, and and I have learned more just over the last couple of months because of this issue. 
And so we're going to take another quick break, and then we're going to jump in just uh, into that conversation to talk about bail and what we know, what we've learned, and why we think this is a a great opportunity for Chase Oaks to come around the needs of people um, that could use a little help. And um, so we're going to take a break, and then we'll come right back. Welcome back. On any given night, nearly half a million people go to bed in jail cells in America without having been convicted of a crime. Uh, The reason they're in there, they couldn't afford bail. Uh, Robin Steinberg, one of the founders of the Bail Project and a former public defender, noticed how this affected so many of her clients who hadn't yet been convicted of anything. They had been accused of something, but everybody, like all of us, are presumed innocent until proven guilty. And so in an interview with the PBS NewsHour, uh, she made some observations that we played a little bit of at the beginning of this episode, but we're going to listen to a longer clip here. And then, Kenny, uh, we're going to have you help us navigate some of these tensions that, that she brings up. So let's listen to this together. So jail is terrifying, and it's violent, and it's dehumanizing. It can do everything from destroy your mental health to your physical health. You can be sexually victimized. You can be one of the many jail deaths that happen in the first week of jail. You can lose your home. You can lose custody of your children. You can be deported. There's a whole cascade of problems that can happen and destruction that happens to you and your family and to your community, even if you're there for one day, two days, or three days in jail. It's a horrifying place to be. So the Bail Project is an unprecedented effort to disrupt the money bail system. The idea is to create a central bail fund that we will then use to open sites in at least 40 places in America where we can begin to use philanthropic dollars to pay people's bail who don't have enough money to get out of those jail cells. Um, Remember, these are people that have not been convicted of anything. These are people that are simply charged with something. By using philanthropic dollars, we actually pay somebody's bail. And at the end of a criminal case, because bail money comes back, it will revolve back into the fund. Bail was actually created to be a form of release. It wasn't intended to hold people in jail cells, and it wasn't intended to create a two-tier system of justice, one for the rich and one for everybody else, but that is exactly what it's done. 75% of people in American local jails are there because they cannot pay bail. These people haven't been convicted of a thing. Until we grapple with what the reality is and how our country has been addicted to imprisonment for as long as it has existed and since slavery to mass incarceration have happened, we're never going to get at the root of the problem. At the root of the problem, there is structural racism. At the root of the problem, there's income inequality. And those are big issues we need to deal with. We also need to really ask ourselves, do we believe in the presumption of innocence or don't we? If we believe in the presumption of innocence, then when somebody is arrested, that presumption should wrap around them. And if we don't believe in it, let's grapple with that. But if we believe in it, nobody should be sitting in jail cells who haven't been convicted of anything. Well, Kenny, I have so many questions about what we just heard. And I know, you know, just to be you know real clear about this up front, you don't work for the Bail Project. You are not an expert like on everything that the Bail Project does, no. but you, you are someone that has uh, interacted mm-hmm. uh, with the Bail Project and, and from Pivot and helping us just as a church think about exactly. about it. And I think the thing for me that, that stood out first is just how little I have thought about bail mm-hmm. Uh which probably says something about what you had mentioned earlier about different systemic privileges like that I have enjoyed, that I have, I've never been in a position to have to think about it. And there was so much that I came away and was like, huh, 
I, I just had never even tried to wrap my head around it. So I, knowing that you're kind of wading into these waters with us and maybe right. some of the answers maybe I don't know exactly, uh, my, my first question is, how exactly does bail work? I mean, what what is it? How is it calculated? Like, who decides all of that? Like, right. uh, what what is bail? Right. So bail really um, starts with a charge, right? And they're brought into court. And at that point, they're sitting there in front of a judge with a district attorney. Um, and between the two, the district attorney and the judge, they come up to a bail um, amount. And in turn, they're looking to um, – and from there – um, they would look to pay 10% of that in bond. And so, and that's 10% that they lose. So if it's $50,000, 10% would be $5,000. They would lose that $5,000. Now they wouldn't have to do that. I mean, they would they not could have post, to. They could just yeah, post bail. That's exactly right. They could pay right. the whole thing, right? $50,000. And, and they get that back once they come to they trial. Would. They would right. get the $50,000, but they have to come up with 50000 at that point. Right. Um, if not, they go to a bond um a bail bondsman. A bail bondsman, and they would have to come up with five thousand. They would have to. They would ultimately lose that money. So, is the amount like who does? I mean, you were saying like it's a district attorney and and, and all that, but is there like, is it based on the severity of the crime? Mm-hmm. Is it based on location? Is it is there other factors like how much does this person make? So, if I'm a multimillionaire, is my bail higher than if I am someone that's poorer? Uh, like how? How does who decides what that number is? It just arbitrary. Like what? What is it? Yeah, I mean, some of it's based on crime, some of it's on criminal history, some of it's based on location, um, some of it's economic. uh, How much resources they have? I mean, it is. It should be different if you have a million dollars of resources or if you have none. Um, So it should have different standards in it. Okay. Hmm. So when we hear um, Robin talk about what she just uh, what we just heard on the PBS news hour and there were she threw out a lot of stats yeah so I want to th- just ask both of you guys what are th- when, when you heard that what stands out the most and or as you have been grappling with this whole issue over the last couple of months two or three months what has been the thing that has really stuck with you uh, as far as some stats that you just didn't had never known before I think for me um Eric, it's similar to what you said. It's I never thought about it mm-hmm. uh, before I kind of got waded into these waters. And I think part of that is because um, I never thought I would ever be stuck in jail. Right. Where, you know, unless I did something really crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But the thought that somebody could be stuck in jail because they walked on the wrong side of a sidewalk, you know, or they, you know, they were somewhere they shouldn't be. I mean, they right. rode their bike on the sidewalk or... um Maybe they have a minor drug charge or they have a uh, a petty theft, you know, yeah. something just dumb that they did. I think I never thought I would be stuck in jail or my kids would be stuck in jail. Um, and, and because they probably wouldn't be. Right. But then to turn around and say, but there's people who will be for the same exact charge. And then the only difference is affluence and the ability to pay it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what shocked me mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And – you know, as I played this out with friends and neighbors and talked about it more and more, I think what I saw over and over again was um, when you really play this out, you start saying, okay, what if you can't get out of jail? So this person cannot make bail, $1,000. They can't pay it. For you and I, maybe it's $500,000, 50000 whatever the number is. And a judge has said, you're free to go, yeah, you are, you, you know, but you're going to have to pay bail to get out. That's exactly right. right. You got to come. Right. You, need a, you need a half million dollars to do it. Right. 
And now all of a sudden you can't go to work tomorrow. So if you own your own business, you can't open the doors. Right. Which now all of a sudden you have another problem or you show up, you can't show up at work for a week. Or you're a single mom. You're a single mom. You have your kids taken away or whatever. And what does that mean for your house? What does it mean for childcare, custody, um, bills that you need to pay um, to be snatched out in a, in a moment? Mm -hmm. Um, If you're taken out of your life tomorrow, you have to come up with a significant amount of money that you cannot come up with what impact that has on you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what rattled me mm-hmm. when I really come down to it is that changes lives as much as, um, and it's all back down to really one key metric and that's how much money you have. Right. And that to me was, you know, when I finally looked at people and said, you have to come up with a million dollars tomorrow, what's going to happen? And I can't come up with that. Well, that means you, what happens now? You're stuck in jail and now play that out. Right. That was, and you could be me, stuck in jail for weeks or months, waiting on trial, waiting, waiting for your trial. Right. I think, I think too, of like the way you were wording that, Kenny, of the fact that my life could be upended in a single traffic stop or something. I don't. That's not my reality. You know, that's not right. the way I think. I mean, it is. I mean, I guess it's all of our reality to a degree, but it's not the way my brain thinks about it. But as I've talked with friends from different backgrounds and. Um, different upbringings that that is their reality and mm-hmm. to hear robin talk about it just brings it all the more real that yeah if i get caught jaywalking you know and it's a 500 hundred dollar bail i can come up with that 500 dollars mm-hmm. without a problem but if i couldn't and say whether that's fair or not or anything big or, or little like the fact that that affects someone's life that can be changed for the near future or even beyond um is crazy. I I think the thing that stood out to me too that I just had never given much thought to is because of that pressure that I wouldn't feel, but people that don't have that uh, five hundred dollars would feel. That would lead to a conviction uh, to a sure I'll plead out. Like let mm-hmm. me see my kids tonight. Um, when she put it that way, and I think the stat that she said, um, I'm not sure if I even have it. Uh, Kenny, you may know it off the top of my head from the TED talk that she gave of just how much more likely they are to plead guilty. Do you, do you know that off the top of your head? Is it like it's, 90% or something? Yeah, I don't know the stat. It was, it was an incredibly high percentage mm-hmm. of if you are caught, you couldn't pay bail, they come in, they say, you want to see your kids tonight, that you're going to plead guilty um, because you you know of all the things, of just how unfair that that right. is, whether you did it or not. Um, I had never given that thought of how um, how bail has turned in that sense into – a strong arm tactic as mm-hmm. opposed to um, just ensuring that people come and report to court. You know, those right. are two totally different things. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the stat, and I can't remember, I've seen, I've watched, I can't remember if it's in the, what we just heard on the, on the PBS thing or it was on the Ted talk, but um, it's like 50% of the time, like once, like for the people, like initially this start with the Bronx, what was it? The Bronx Freedom Yeah, Fund? so most of these stats come out of the Bronx Freedom Fund, yeah, the which Bronx is Freedom where Fund. the bail project started. Yeah, where, where it began. And so of the folks that they bailed out, once they bailed them out, 50% of the time the, char- the charges were dropped. Exactly. And then of those who actually went to court, um, what was it, 2% or 3% actually got jail time? I think it was 2%. Yes, 2%. 2% got jail time, which is just kind of crazy. Which, by the way, if they don't get bailed out, they're all serving jail time at the moment. Right. So they're going to get jail time. Yeah. And um, just waiting on trial. Right. And the other thing that stood out to me in those stats is can you imagine going, waiting on trial for weeks? All the impact that has on you, 
And then all of a sudden they go, hey, by the way, dismissed. Yeah. Right. And we all go, oh, isn't that awesome? It got dismissed. The economic impact that has on somebody is devastating. Because they're not right. going to go back and get your job for no. you. They're not going to go and fight right. for your kids to get back to you. And right. Yeah, and I did look. It was from the TED Talk, which there's a TED Talk that's on this. You could type in Bail Project, and it's uh, It's also long, on our website. Yeah, it's on, on chasehooks.org uh, that gets into this deeper. It's the same presenter. Mm-hmm. It's Robin. Um, but it is 90%. Like if you're held on bail, 90% of them will plead out, will plead right. guilty. Um it, versus if they had not, they would have gotten those 50% yeah. when the bail gets paid, get the charges dismissed, which just shows of a – just a, that should that should hit us from a justice level that right. says, okay, from that, that's just systemically unfair. And some of that – I mean with our work in Pivot and the diversion program, we see the impact of this. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they don't know what they're pleading guilt and the impact that has. Right. So they go, hey, I'm just pleading for – in their mind, a small drug charge or um, a petty theft, whatever. Now it's on their record. It impacts their employment. They don't realize the life-changing impact. And some of that comes back to education. Mm -hmm. Some of that comes back to awareness. um, And some of it comes out of desperation. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's easy on our end to go, well, you shouldn't plead out. But we don't sit there with the tension. Yeah, we're not in those shoes. Right. We're not like, what's going to happen to my kids? How are they going to get to school tomorrow? And... You know, you know. I heard the bail project say it one time. I mean, some people are literally worried about their dog. Yeah. Like, how is he going to eat? How is she going to, you know, he hasn't been let out in 24 hours. What's going on? Yeah. You know, and that's just a basic life thing, but it tells you about the impact that something right. like this has and why you plead out. I tell you, it's, but I, I think the the quote or the stat that affects me the most is that 75% in local jails um have not been convicted of anything, mm-hmm. which I just had no, that is completely amazing to me. And we probably should clarify. She's not talking about federal prisons. Mm-hmm. That's just local sort of County jails, you know, right. the, the local jails. Um, and that's true for Dallas County when mm-hmm. they, uh, I know that when they came and they did searches, it, it was right in that ballpark. It was right around 70% of the, uh, at least at that time, um, it was like 4,800 folks, they were in Dallas County Jail, and 70% of them had not been convicted of anything, mm-hmm. um, which is just astounding. And I, think, and I think on that, that same talk was the $14 billion annually that is spent yeah. mm-hmm. on jailing people that have not been convicted of anything. pretrial detention. Yes, yes right. which is – I mean, so if it's even not just a, a justice thing, it's an economic thing right. as well. So, Kenny, she used a phrase – I mean, we've kind of hit on it, but I just want to make sure – it's clear for people. She used a phrase about a two-tier system of mm-hmm. justice. So, um, what is what does she mean by that? What's been your experience with what with what that's referring to? Well, I think Brian Stevenson said it well, where he says uh, it's better to be, um, I think it's guilty and rich than innocent and poor. Hmm. And you know, because, and I'll say it for me personally. I, I, you know, I think I look back, and so often um, I, I, I see somebody who is a person of color. I see somebody who uh, has been charged with a crime, and um, and I and I kind of lean to like, oh, well, I'm sure they might be guilty, you know. And as and I've, as I've wrestled through this, I've had to wrestle through my own issues, and right. I think that's the challenge. And then you go, but if they're white and they have um, affluence and they, and they dress up right and they do all the things right. Well, I'm sure we'll work something out. Yeah. Right. And I think that's the difference. 
at the end of the day is uh, some of that is just – some of that's true, as Brian Stevenson would say. It's better to be affluent and guilty in our system because you can hire a lawyer, the, the better lawyer. You can hire um, and, and really uh, defend yourself well, which typically leads to better results hmm. for them than somebody who can't defend themselves. Yeah. I think I think that's – and I appreciate you saying that because I think – I think all of us, like myself included, it's like whenever we dive into an issue like this where there's some strong opinions and some fear uh, that's in there, I think we have to kind of dive into some of those those inner demons that none of us like to talk about that right. says, hey, within me, when there's fear and we're talking about justice, like if we're talking about justice and doing what's right and putting criminals behind bars, then which are all – I mean we want we want there to be justice, but we also need to think about it from the idea of like, okay – have I really dived into all of the intricacies uh, and challenges of our criminal justice system and how it, it is bent towards um, if you have money, and this is a pretty <laughs> clear example, if you have money, then uh, it works better for you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that there's maybe something within me that tends to think that if you have money, you, maybe you didn't do it or you're probably, mm-hmm. oh, you, should, you, know, you shouldn't have to do the full sentence you right. know, or there should be a way to do, get around that or counseling or something. Right. And yet that there's so many people that are stuck in jail um, mm-hmm. that either don't need to be or get a more severe um, sentence because simply because of their affluence or their race mm-hmm. or their background. And um, that should bother us. It, bother, mm-hmm. it should bother me that that's within me to right. think that way. Mm-hmm. For sure. So speaking of fear, yeah, um, I want to I bring up a story that uh, happened recently. Um, and just sort of talk about it. I know that uh, not long ago from the the recording time of this of this podcast, there was uh, an incident that happened in St. Louis involving the bail project um, that made some news and things like that. And I just want to, I want Kenny, I'd like for you to share what you know about that. Um, and I know a few things too, just sort of reading some articles so I can sort of fill that in. But I think it'd be better just to sort of talk about this. It's, it's, this is not without... I mean, it's a messy, it's a messy world and, um, and criminal justice system and getting involved in people's lives. It's messy. So, um, tell us what, what, you know, what, what happened in St. Louis? Yeah. I mean, uh, the bail project, um, bailed an individual out mm-hmm. and at the end of that, um, process, he went home and, um, killed his, um, wife, girlfriend right. of, and, and it's devastating, right? I yeah. mean, it's it's absolutely um, disappointing, devastating. Mm-hmm. You can't put enough words on it, right? And feelings. And the thing of you know talking to the bail project, they're d- disappointed, yeah. and I'm sure the judge is disappointed, and I'm I'm sure the DA's disappointed, yeah. um, because there was a lot of misses in in that moment, right? So, um, yeah. So that's that's what happened. So, yeah, so at least on some of those details, the individual who committed that crime, he initially committed a misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. Um, the bail project uh, came alongside the DA the, and the judge, said he was free to go mm-hmm. um, and as long as he posted bail. It was a fourth-degree misdemeanor. It's yeah. the lowest misdemeanor possible. Yeah. And he could have, he could have uh, posted that bail in a variety of ways. If That's he right. had the money, he would have just done it out of his own pocket like you or I would have. 
or if he had uh, generational wealth and family, they could have done it, um, or he could have gone to a bail bondsman, or there, there were multiple ways for him mm-hmm. to do it. In this case, the bail, the, the bail project came around him mm-hmm. um, and posted the bail for him, and, um, and he committed a crime, uh, domestic abuse that ended up killing his wife. Yep. And it's just, yeah, like you said, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does, I think for folks who might be already like, wait a minute, is this okay to be, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, it, this could be used as a, or, or could be kind of, well, look at, look at what happened. And I think for me, even I had to sort of wrestle through this and, right. and, but, but kind of say, but a judge already said he was free to go right. if he posted bail. There was, like, there was all of these sort of these conditions that were there. And if he would have paid out of his own money and posted bail and did that. I mean, I don't know that it would have made the news in the same way, right. you know, um, but it is something, you know, I mean, we're not trying to hide anything or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is a, it's a, it's a messy thing. This, yeah, this process is messy, you know, yeah. um, and there will be those stories, right? you know, and I would say the same thing about pivot and working yeah. in diversion program, that, that there's risk um, in what we're doing. And so, and I think it's smart just to be up front with mm-hmm. like, hey, here here are the risks and here are some of the things, you know. And, you know, they have bailed out 4,300 people. The bail project. The bail yeah. project has, you know. So, and this is the only time something like this has happened yeah, to, I mean, th- to this degree. To this degree, yeah. you know. I mean, there's other stories. You know, there's been some assaults. There's been a right. couple, you know. But, you know, to this degree, this is yeah. – and, and I know just interacting with them, it has been devastating for them as well. Can yeah. you, you know. Can you, can you can you describe just from as you've worked with them on how they go about evaluating whose bail that they are going to cover with this right. fund, who they won't cover with this fund, what amount they would cover? What what does that process look like for them? Yeah, typically you're talking about less than $5,000 bails typically. And um but they rely on the judge and the DA to and, and set bail at the right levels and so and vet people well so the judge in the da always has the right to say hey we're not going to allow bail in this situation we feel like this is a danger to our our society so they Mm -hmm. can do that and so you know they really do rely on those those individuals to do their their due diligence and then they come along and support um the individual after that and then I've also heard, and I, I, again, we're kind of putting you on the spot as sure. like a bail project <laughs> spokesman, which right. you're not. Yeah, they, you know. they, they would be nervous right yeah, now. They would be really <laughs> nervous uh, right now. But, um, but you have had a lot more conversations. There's just been a great sort of relationship between Pivot and, and the bail project. Because um, we've also heard like there's other things that they do other mm-hmm. than just doing the money part. They kind of come along in a limited way, but they right. do come alongside folks. Could you talk about that as yeah. what you've learned? I mean, they have a vested interest that they come back, right? This right. is a revolving bail fund. So this is mean, and that only works if people consistently come back. Mm-hmm. And so I think the stats 96% of the time they show up for court. Right. And what the reason for that is they do what they would say is wraparound support. Mm-hmm. So they refer out to agencies in the community to help them with transportation, to help them with some housing, help them with food, help them with some child care. I mean, those type things because they need them supported well, right, ultimately to come back to court. Yeah. So um, this isn't just a, hey, we're going to pay and leave. and But that is voluntary. That's not something they mandate. So, you know, some individuals do that and some people don't. Yeah. And they have to assess that risk as well. And some of that is factored into whether or not they pay the bill. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard Robin Steinberg say that the – what they have found, the best thing 
to get people back to court is not bail. It's a court reminder right. and transportation help. That's exactly you know, right. it's yep. like some of those like ground level, just sort of details of life and just, and so that's what they do. Yeah. And it can some be confusing. I mean, the whole process can, I mean, it's confusing anytime you engage in the criminal, because it's easy to just be like, oh, man, why can't they remember to come? And then you realize like even getting jury summons is kind of a complicated mm-hmm. process from right. time to time of like, where do I need to go? and What do I need to do? And, and so if you just expound that upon, like multiply that uh, from someone who just got out of jail is trying to get their life in order, do any number of things, and then trying to remember to get to court without a means of being able to do so. That's a big deal. Um, and I think that's a pretty telling stat that 96% show up uh, when they do it that way. And, and it's of, not their money well, and, on the line. And Yeah, because yeah. you would think, like, oh, well, they're, not, they're just going to run away or do whatever. Right. And it's like, no, they, they, you know, there's a lot of incentives to wanting to show up to court. You know, as they don't far want as that record. charge yeah. Yeah, hanging right. over their head. Yeah. And I think it's just a, her point of the original reason why bail was set up was to not be punitive. It was not meant to create inequality. It was meant to just give incentive for people to show up. And if that incentive doesn't need to be there in that way, um, and now all that is you know, the the offsetting effects is that there's inequality, then we need to reconsider that system. And Well, and the I, purpose I get of that. it was to get people out of jail. Yes. So they yeah. don't have to sit in jail. <laughs> right. Right? You know what I yeah, mean? It, exactly was to, right. it was to yeah. get them out. And so the fact that it might be used for the very opposite of that within within maybe lower income folks or, or whatever, that's that's just kind of, that's really disturbing to me. Yeah. Can you, can, can, and I think this would be good for all of us yeah. maybe to, because I know this is a wrestling for all of right. us of, of kind of just how, how did you choose as you heard about this to say hey I, this is worth getting involved in this is this is a this is something that and and, and I would even add into that say if people are listening and they want to be involved um, and they want to wrestle with this well like we're right. all wrestling mm-hmm. with what 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 kind of put you over the edge of saying you know what this is worth that risk uh, of kind of pushing through the messiness to mm-hmm. say I'm gonna I'm going to go in with this, um, despite all the some of the unknowns of of what someone may do when they're out. It, just talk me through your own personal wrestling with mm-hmm. this and where you kind of where you landed and why you landed there. Yeah, I, I would say this is really personal for me because I now two years ago I didn't know a ton of people in this situation, and now they're real names. Yeah, you know, and I think that's part of the challenge is these are real people that have real lives that their trajectory is different because of this moment and, and seeing the difference. And, um, in regards to, you know, I, I know a guy he's been charged with five, six DUIs, DWIs, all, but no jail time. No, you know, it's all wiped off his record and he's a white person with affluence, you know? Um, that doesn't happen if you're a person of color. Hmm. And I think that's that's a difference. And yeah. I think stuff like that slowly gets in your crawl. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say that, you know, having two girls of color, I mean, impact how you view the news and how you see things as well. Your adopted girls. Yeah. Talk about, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. my two girls from Uganda, I mean, that just radically shifts your perspective and how you see things. Mm. So um, both of those things kind of kind of shook me. And then when you get to bail, man, it when you really put together that um, some of the charges we're talking about that people are sitting in jail, um, I mean, less than $5,000, 
this is an issue of poverty. And as we started the initiative around poverty alleviation, that brought us back to bail Mm -hmm. in some ways because, you know, we're not talking about paying bail for millionaires. You know, we're talking about people who are, you know, living in poverty and we're trying to help. And for me, when you see this as another obstacle to opportunity, it's another obstacle to poverty. And how could the church, and what a great story if the church could be a source uh, of opportunity, of grace, uh, of of unexpected s- surprise. Um, man, I think that, that could just tell a powerful, could be really powerful. Yeah, That's I think, awesome. I think for me, as I was thinking about it too, is just the idea of that that cycle that gets stuck for somebody that if they, it's kind of like the old concept of even like debtor's prison back in the day of like, hey, you owe a debt, so we're going to throw you in prison, but then you have no way to ever earn money to pay off that debt. Right. And you're like, well, how does that make sense? And it mm-hmm. doesn't. And, and hearing the, there's a Dateline uh, uh, episode that was on the bail project that you can Google as well. And they were interviewing some people that were in jail and you're like, this is that all over again. It's, right. it's just crazy. So well, thank you, Kenny, for sharing. And yeah. um, thank you so much yeah, for and, the work you do, and thanks for yeah. joining us today. And I, I think just thank for you. all of us too, like that. I think what's cool is just to wrestle with this together to say, hey, this isn't. I, th- I think those things that Jesus calls us to do that um, are maybe maybe potentially the most impactful things we can do are also some of the most uncomfortable things. Whether it's reaching out to have a conversation with someone that uh, bothers us, and we're supposed to figure out a way to engage with them, or um, or if it's something like this, where you're like, okay, I don't know, I, I can't control everything, but but there is something that's unjust that's going on that I need that I can step into. It does not require even that much money that we're ultimately right. talking about. And so, um, if you want more information about uh, the Bail Project, you can go to their website, which is bailproject.org. Um, if you want more information just about how we're involved with it, you can go to chaseoaks.org, and we've got a ton of information uh, that is on there as well. So that concludes this episode of the Page 2 Podcast. As always, we would love to hear from you. Uh, You can comment on our website, page2podcast.com, and uh, we'd love to hear any ideas that you have and potentially uh, ideas that you would have for another season uh, as we look forward to that, and we'll keep you updated uh, on our Facebook page and on that website about when our next season is going on and how you can be involved. Uh, as always, we'd also like to thank the Center for Church Renewal and David Powers, our technical expert, as well as our friend Reflect with a K. He's the guy that has supplied us with the great beats that you hear throughout this uh, week's episode. Thanks for joining with us. We'll see you next season. Take care.